Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 51 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And this week we actually have the shortest block of study that we've had the entire year. You would think that means my notes would be far less and my study time would be far less, but turns out it's not because what we're studying is Malachi. And if you don't know this about Malachi, even though we only have four chapters to study, they are jam-packed with core doctrine. In fact, two of the chapters, three and four, they're quoted almost verbatim by the Savior when he comes to visit the Nephites. So that should tell you how much weight we should give this very tail end of the Old Testament. There's a lot here, so I'm going to help walk you through it. But let me tell you where you are time-wise. Basically, we've jumped about 70 years from where we were last week when we ended with Zechariah. And they've accomplished some things. The temple did eventually get built. People kind of did rally and change their plans. The walls get built. All that stuff with Nehemiah and Ezra, all that's happened and now we're in the, we got comfortable and we're backsliding phase. In fact, I wonder sometimes, you know that talk we studied with Elder Uchtdorf where he talked about a matter of degrees and how just a few degrees off makes this incredible change in your ending destination? That's sort of where I wonder if that's where we are. Because you can hear the prophet Malachi trying to help the people understand how their small choices, their adjustments to the covenants or adjustments to the doctrine have led them far off course and how there isn't much time left to repair things. So they need to act now. And I just thought it was really helpful for me. It was one of those studies where I felt the Holy Ghost kind of nudging me to say, hey, there's a, there's a few degrees you could shift back. <laughs> you know, you'll get that as you study Malachi because you can see where their small adjustments have big ramifications, not just on their generation, but on the 400 years that will follow. Because remember, Malachi is the last prophet we have to this group of people. They won't see another one until John the Baptist comes 400 years in the future. So you can guess how important these words are and how much we should study them, especially since the Savior himself quotes them. I think there's a lot to learn here. I would tell you though that there's a lot of correction in these verses. So as you're listening for correction, try to keep a soft heart. <laughs> At least that was the advice I gave myself because I heard Elder Rednar speak once and he said basically that if the Spirit hasn't corrected you lately, then you should check the quality of your prayers, which was always a bit haunting to me. You know, like I think there's always things that I can do a little bit better. There's things I can course correct to have a much better, happier ending destination. And that's kind of what I got from the words of Malachi. So I hope you get those too. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. Let's get started, you guys. remember that quote from Joseph Smith? I don't have it in front of me. I need to read it again. But he basically said something to the effect of a religion that doesn't demand enough sacrifice will never have the strength necessary to like create conversion in the people. That's like, I feel like what's happening in Malachi 1, that they, the priests and the teachers who are set apart to uphold God's law, right? Their job is to uphold the law of Moses and make sure things at the temple are happening as they should, that the sacrifices should be what the Lord directed, that the ceremonies and things should be as the Lord guided them. And they're not doing that. In fact, it seems like they've slackened on the law because what people are bringing to the sacrificial altar is no longer a clean, pure lamb without blemish, and without spot. In fact, you'll see in the verses that they're bringing blind animals, animals that are broken or maimed or the weaklings of the flock instead of what the Lord asked for. And the priests and the teachers who are supposed to be regulating those things are letting it slide. So in addition to going against their own duties, they're causing stumbling in the faith of 
others because they're softening the sacrifice. They're basically saying to their people, I know the Lord said it this way, but here's a way you could get around that. And I think it's it's interesting to me as a person who often teaches youth and young adults even, this is a tempting thing to do at times. I've caught myself in this several times where it's tempting to soften the doctrine because I don't want to offend or I want to seem like I'm, I get the world that they live in. And so I have a tendency sometimes to want to like soften the, the doctrine. And what I've learned over and over again from the Spirit and from that quote from Joseph Smith is that that kind of softening of sacrifice doesn't yield discipleship. What I'm doing is I'm actually shortchanging them because when push comes to shove, they need the sacrifice in order to build the understanding of Jesus Christ. All those sacrifices are intended to guide our hearts towards Jesus Christ. So when I short sell it or I tell them, no, it's fine, you know, you don't have to go quite that far. I'm actually robbing them of a relationship with the Lord. And that's what I see in the verses, that they, they're lacking a relationship with the Lord. So if you look at one and two, this is a burden. Malachi is going to have to come and correct. And people aren't going to like to be corrected. <laughs> There's a great quote in the notes from Elder Christopherson that talks about the reasons that were corrected by the Lord. And I think all of those apply here. But basically, he's trying to get them back on course because the people are falling apart. So these priests and leaders need to get back on track. And they, he basically says to them, the Lord loves you. And their response is, does he? Prove it. You know, like they, they put the burden of proof on the Lord and they're, they show this lack of relationship, the way they talk about him and the way they seem completely oblivious to the offenses that they're creating. So if you look at like verse six, for example, it says, O priest that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? They really don't see it. In their mind, they're recruiting people. They're getting maybe more people into the temple than have ever been there before. They're, they're not seeing how they're offending God by not following his precepts. And so they question, like in seven, wherein have we polluted thee? What have we done wrong? It's this, it's the same way that sometimes when you're in a relationship with someone at the beginning stages of a friendship or something, they may not know you well enough to know what would offend or what really means the most to you. And so they're in a situation where they should have had a deep relationship with the Lord because they're his covenant people. They should know his heart intimately. They should know why these sacrifices are the way they are. And they're pulling away. So they're creating a bigger offense because of the light that they carry as covenant children of God. They're just missing it. And so he says to them, I can't accept your offering. It's the same thing he said to Cain way back at the beginning of the Old Testament. Remember when Cain wanted to bring fruits of the field instead of the firstlings of the flock? And the Lord basically said, I can't accept this. This is supposed to be in similitude of the Savior, and this isn't in similitude. So try again. And it gives him a chance to correct, and Cain doesn't take it. And that's kind of what's happening here. Malachi is giving them a chance to course correct and to, to put together a better offering. A pure offering is what it's called in 11. They just don't quite get it. So in 13, it says that they are bringing things that are torn, that are lame, that are sick. And then he calls them deceivers. I thought this was an interesting word uh, because it, it reminded me a little bit of Elder Rednar's talk at conference where he talked about those who choose not to put on the garments of God, you know, the tunic, that parable that we've discussed a couple of times, that they're not just showing indifference, they're showing rebellion. And these priests, when they know the law and have been taught the law and then allow people to break it, are not neutral. They're rebellious. And that has a whole different level of responsibility. 
I just felt like it was this invitation. The more I read these verses, the more I found myself wondering if there's areas in my life where I'm giving less than a great offering, or at least less than a pure offering. I do think it's really important to note, though, that a pure offering isn't necessarily ceremony. So if you look in the Bible, you can see lots of examples of this. Like, you know, when Joseph and Mary had to give an offering at the temple and they, in their poverty, couldn't have given a lamb, so they were allowed to give turtle doves, right? That's part of the law of Moses. The widow's mite is offered and it's fully accepted and revered by the Lord, even though it's a small offering, but it's their whole offering. In fact, I think it's D. Todd Christofferson, it's in the notes, but he talks about that, that we need to give a whole offering because what we're promising and what we're putting on the altar is us, right? The priests at this point are letting the people, you know how we talked last year about in order to become a butterfly, you have to let go of being a caterpillar. And that's how we can kind of understand this idea of becoming a new creature in Christ. We have to be something totally different than what we were before. And basically what the priests are trying to teach the people and what sometimes I get tempted to teach the youth is you can be a little bit of both. You can be 90% pure offering and 10% here. And it simply isn't true. In fact, what the Book of Mormon teaches in 2 Nephi is that you need to come and offer your whole soul to him as an offering. And when you're willing to do that, that's when the sacrifice yields a change of heart. That's when you become a disciple of Christ. So you're going to see all of that in chapter one. You guys remember when we studied Lot and after he left Sodom and Gomorrah, he pitched his tent far away, but facing Sodom and Gomorrah, which eventually caused his downfall because he never quite left. He never quite fully shifted over. That's, I think, what's happening here with the Jews as well, that their priests and their teachers, by changing the laws just slightly and minimizing their amount of sacrifice, they've left a lot of ambiguity and left people an opportunity to keep one foot in Babylon and one foot in Zion. And it's causing all kinds of troubles. So the first half of the chapter is focused on what's going to happen with the priests. So you can see he, Malachi has some strong words for the priests. He basically says in one, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. Like, let there, let there be no question who this is directed towards. This is for you. If you will not hear, if you will not lay at the heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. I thought this was interesting that Malachi has to point that out because what that means is they don't even see yet the cursings, right? They're so blinded to the Lord's words and maybe even the feeling of the spirit that they they don't even recognize how far off they are. They don't see the blessings that they're losing, probably because those blessings might not surface for a generation or two, but they will surface. I think it's a warning to all of us, right? That my choice to be off by a few degrees will create a much wider gap in my children and my grandchildren. So I've got, I've got to stay aligned. And that's what he's warning the priests about, because that's their responsibility. In fact, you'll see in the verses, especially like around four, he says, at some point you'll know, you'll remember what you're supposed to do. Because these priests are of the tribe of Levi. They were set apart to accomplish this work for the Lord. They were given this priesthood in order to fulfill his will, to serve the people, to bring them to Christ, to bring them to the covenant. It's the same thing we see in the oath and covenant of the priesthood right now, that the, that the people who hold the priesthood are there to serve and to bless and to bring people to Christ so they can access those ordinances of salvation. And they're, they're dropping the ball. 
And so Malachi teaches them, but he does it in this interesting way. So if you look from like five and six and seven, he reminds them of what they used to be. Not them personally, but their group, the Levites, who initially held this calling and who honored it. He talks about them. So he says, my covenant was with him of life and peace. I gave it to him for the fear therewith he feared me and he was afraid before my name. Meaning there was reverence there. The Levites who initially held this position, who respected their priesthood, there was a, a reverence and an honor, a weight to that mantle that they carried. He goes a little farther and he says, the law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and deterred many away from iniquity. I love that piece because that's what a good, someone who upholds their priesthood does, right? They bring people to Christ. They don't just not cause stumbling. They help funnel people towards him. That's, that's the promise and they're missing it. And, and it's that walked with me piece that I think is so sad. When they choose not to uphold their priesthood, they miss the opportunity to walk with him, to know him and to have this covenant relationship with the Lord. And it's sad. It's sad to Malachi. It's sad to the Lord. And at some point, this group of priests will understand. They just don't yet. So he talks about in seven, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I love this piece because it's kind of talks about how Malachi has a burden and he has to say it. It's the same kind of thing here. He's saying, you're not called to say your own words. You're not called to give your own opinions on the law of Moses or on what sacrifices are good or not good. You're called to be a messenger for God. And his message has already been put out. It's very clear. And they're just not giving it. I love this because of the way we see our own prophets and apostles exemplify this every, not just in conference, but in every time they speak. I recently had heard a quote from President Oaks about how we define family based on the family proclamation, where that definition comes from and why we will always uphold it because it's the word of God. In fact, I love it when you dovetail that in with what we learned from Zelda Renlin last conference in the women's session where he said, demanding revelation from God is both arrogant and unproductive. It's the same idea. He's like, these are not our words and it, it wouldn't help me to pray to change God's words. It's arrogant and it's unproductive. We are apostles of God. We speak his word and they do it clearly and they do it with, without fear. I'm sure it, I'm sure it's, they have to be cautious. In fact, I, I've just been listening to a book from Elder Holland about, it's all about his writings on the New Testament, but he spoke about this for a chapter where he talked about, this is one of the weights of being an apostle is that you're constantly seeking the gift of the spirit that will allow you to speak truth with compassion, that you'll be able to find a way to say what the Lord needs you to say with compassion. What I loved is his invitation was basically, it can be done. This is great, right? This is a promise that the spirit will help you. That's what it means to be articulate, according to Elder Holland, is to have that spiritual gift to be able to say what the Lord needs you to say in the kindest way you can. And I, I just love that. For those of us who are teaching our own kids or teaching youth, I think there's beauty in that message. But I, I love that there's a reminder from Malachi about that's what it means to be a priest or a teacher. It means to speak God's word because it's what we've studied all year long, right? It's those two great commandments. If I love God first and I honor God first, he will teach me how to love my fellow men. But if I reverse those, I'll never be on the right track. If I try to love my fellow men first and then adapt how much I love God so that I can, I'll never end up in the right destination. I've got I've to put those priorities in the right order. So you'll see some of that in Malachi 2. The other thing you're going to see in the last you know, seven or eight verses 
is a warning about where they've gone awry with marriage. So another one where they've gone off by a few degrees and then now have ended far off course. Basically what's happened is similar to what we saw in Solomon's day, where they're taking on women from other religions. They're setting aside their own wives, the mothers of their children, the wives of the covenant is what the verses teach, and they are seeking after others. In fact, the Old Testament manual describes them as young women of other lands that go after strange gods, and they're trying to accumulate those. And there are some harsh words in the verses. They're harsh in the most beautiful way. He says things like, yet she is thy companion. This is in verse 14, and the wife of thy covenant, that there will be the purposes for godly seed. They're supposed to have a covenant generation that comes next. They're, they're giving in to lust and to greed and to other weaknesses, and they're setting aside the covenant. What I love about this direction is I think one of the reasons that eternal marriage is that pinnacle point in our covenant path, it's because you learn so much about being like God when you're in that relationship. I think that's why everyone is promised that they'll have an opportunity to have that relationship because you need it in order to understand what it means to become a divine parent, right? It's you learn so much. So when these men, both the priests and the men who are following after them, choose strange wives and bring other gods and idol worship into their families, they lose all that. They lose the sacrifice, they lose the commitment, they lose what they learn from being devoted to the covenant wife of their youth. So the Lord warns, he warns in 16, he hateth those who are putting away. And then in 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. I love that phrase because I think, well, you'll laugh, but the thing that came to my mind is, I don't know if you've seen the play My Fair Lady, but there's a song that she sings that's kind of like this, like she's so sick of words and she just wants him to act and do something. And I think sometimes this happens in the Old Testament, that the Lord is sick of their sanctimony. He's tired of their words and their gestures and their celebration. He just wants their hearts and he wants their hearts committed to their wives and he wants them to be this covenant priesthood holding people that they're intended to be and he's just done with their words. Malachi 3 and 4 have a bit more of a future focus and I think it's a teaching strategy of Malachi's that he's been trying to teach them in a certain way for the first two chapters and it's not yielding the response he's getting so he's shifting gears a little bit and he's teaching about the day that the Lord comes again and how that will feel. I think he's trying to make it really clear about the consequences of their actions. And then once they have that fear, then he's going to teach them what they need to do. He'll talk to them about tithing. He'll talk to them about covenants. But at the beginning, he's warning about the day of the Lord that will come. And so in one, he gives us that great prophecy about a messenger that will come to prepare the way of the Lord and that he will come suddenly. Now, there's lots of different applications for the messenger. Uh, in the New Testament, they'll refer to John the Baptist as a fulfillment of this prophecy. But this most of it is related to the second coming when there'll be this burning and refiner's fire. There's a lot of prophets who comment on it being a fulfillment, that it was fulfilled with Joseph Smith and with other modern prophets. Uh, even Moses and Elijah, as they come again, they're a fulfillment of this prophecy. But I really like that coming on suddenly because I don't think it necessarily means he'll come quickly. In fact, I think... I read one of the prophets who said that what it means is when he comes, there will be no more time to course correct. I think that's why our prophets put such an emphasis on now is the day to repent. Don't procrastinate the day of your repentance because 
when he does come, there will be no time to, to shift, to change course, to say, oh, I knew it all along. There won't be time because he comes suddenly. And then in two, he talks about, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I love that they use these terms. It's something we read in Isaiah as well. Because refiner's fire is what we talk about when we think about our own adversities, right? When you think about going through something hard, it's often called a refiner's fire because you're supposed to come out more pure on the other side, right? And I was thinking like, why is it they use that same phrase here? And what it reminded me of was high school volleyball, as weird as that sounds. Because the first two weeks of volleyball when I was getting back into the season were brutal because my arms were unprepared, right? I don't know if you guys have played volleyball, but like you take some serious hits to your forearms. And so those first two weeks, my coach would deliberately hit us hard on the arms with the ball. Like she would spike it over the net hard at us so that we'd build up a tolerance for that intensity. And then after a week or two of dealing with balls slamming at your forearms, your arms developed this kind of toughness and you were just fine. And you could handle whatever was coming next in the rest of the season. And you started to not even realize that it hurt, right? Because you just had developed this thicker skin. And that's what I wonder if, if, maybe this is what he's talking about when he talks about a refiner's fire, that this, this heat and this intensity that will come when the Savior comes again will be hot and intense. But if we've spent a lifetime of dealing with hot, intense things, and we have learned to come out the other side and come through with faith and trust, we can tolerate them. In fact, they won't even sting. You know, it's the same way, just recently I was squeezing out lemons and I had a hangnail at the time. And so what normally is a completely painless process of getting juice out of a lemon hurt like crazy. And it shouldn't have hurt that much because the wound was so small. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I, that's how I take it anyway. He's saying, those of you who choose to come to this day still covered in wounds, like Isaiah taught, that our sins that go unhelped and unhealed are open wounds. And at this day, it's too late. And the, the Savior can't offer you the peace and the healing and the comfort that he would have given you in your mortal life had you asked. I don't think that means there is no comfort at this day for those who are sorrowing. It's just different. And there's some pretty clear warnings about that. So you'll see all that in those verses. When you go a little bit further, you're also going to see that there's an offering that's going to be made. When he comes to the temple, there will be a worthy offering made. I wonder if this is part of Malachi's teaching as well, that he's trying to remind these priests who are so far off course why it matters so much. Why does this offering need to be pure? Why does it need to be exactly the way the Lord has described it? Uh, because maybe they'll learn, right? They'll hear about how it's going to be in the future when the Savior comes, and it will hopefully motivate them to do it better in their day. So you'll see some um, talk about the offering. You can go in the notes and learn a lot more about Joseph Smith's commentary on it, Joseph Fielding Smith's commentary, but there will be an offering made when the Savior comes again. And then there's a promise, an invitation to return. So this is where Malachi hinges in verse 7. He says, even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And you'll say, wherein shall we return? So this is the hinge, right? This is where Malachi sees their hearts, hopefully, turning. And they're going to say, what do we need to do differently? And this is where you get that beautiful, short sermon on tithing. So he says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Remember, they don't even realize that they're cutting the Lord short. And he says, in tithes and in offerings. So they're cursed with a curse. And then he invites them. 
bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. I could spend 10 minutes on just this one verse. There's so many things I love about this promise. It's so positive. It's so hope-filled. First, he talks about them robbing, because honestly, I think they probably think they're being neutral by changing the sacrificial laws, by adapting things for the people, they probably feel like they're more on neutral ground. And what he's saying is, you're being duplicitous. You're trying to serve two masters. You're robbing God. You can't offer a partial offering and not rob God because he gave you the whole offering to offer. So when you hold some of it back, you miss out, right? Which is the same thing that happens to us if we have a calling or in our parenting even, and we choose to only offer a partial offering, like I'll, I'll give you a lot of my energy and a lot of my time, Lord. I just really love this one hobby or I really love this one sin or whatever it is, right? When we offer this partial offering, we're robbing God because he's the one that gave us the talent to have that hobby. He's the one that blessed us with the financial means to do those things. And so we're robbing him. So he warns about that. And then he says, prove me now. I, I love the phrase now, prove me now. Like this is not something that's going to take generations for them to see the effectiveness of their obedience. It will happen now. I love that when it comes to tithing, because oftentimes we'll speak about tithing and the blessings that come from tithing. And so many of those great stories are immediate. I heard like 10 just this week as I was studying and learning from prophets and apostles about this, where the blessings are so immediate. They're just not always financial. And that I think is really instructive. In fact, Elder Bednar, it's in the notes, but he talks about that phrase, windows of heaven, that that doesn't necessarily mean when those windows open, a financial blessing dumps out. Because <laughs> that's what he promises, that not only will the windows open, but it will pour out. That's how many blessings the Lord has in store for you. There is an abundance to that phrase. But Elder Bednar talks about how those are things we can't perceive yet. That oftentimes those blessings that pour out may not be financial, but there'll be a change of our perspective we'll see things differently. We will have a friendship open up or a job opportunity open up, or we'll see a healing in our marriage or a relationship with our children that we would have missed out on had we not honored that covenant that we didn't, if we didn't pay our tithing, we would have missed out on. So I read Elder Brudner's talk. I thought he did such a good job of talking about the windows of heaven. Basically what he says is, if you think about a window, what a window offers is illumination. So even as you open a window, what it does is it lets light flood in and warm, you know, like warm anyone on the other side. And that's what the blessings of tithing are. It's a promise of spiritual illumination to see your adversities more clearly, to see your blessings more abundantly, and to feel the warmth of God as it hits you. Don't you just love that? Go, go read Elder Bednar's talk. I just loved it. He also promises in 11 that he will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither the vine that cast her fruit. So this is, there's some great, again, if you go on the notes, there's some beautiful talks from prophets and apostles who speak of these blessings pouring out, not just to individuals, but to whole communities, you know, where droughts are lifted and things grow that shouldn't have grown. So you can see these promises fulfilled in small ways and in great big ways when you go and study the words of the prophets. He also says, you'll be blessed to be a delightsome land that this promised land that they love so much and that's part of their heritage will flourish as they pay their tithing. Uh, it's a big, weighty promise that he doesn't want them to miss. When you flip the page, you can see there's more to that promise. This is when you start to realize that 
this gateway of tithing leads right into where we go next, which is talking about the sealing ordinances. And this was new to me as I was studying this week. I just had never pieced it together. But a lot of the commentary I read about tithing talks about how it is a critical path in order to get to the temple ordinances, because you need to be a full tither to access a temple recommend. And so you, you simply can't get to those saving, sealing, beautiful, everlasting ordinances without this promise, without making this sacrifice that every generation before has just been asked to make. So there's this unifying nature of the commandment of tithing that I just hadn't caught before. And you'll see it as you go a little bit deeper into Malachi 3. What's interesting is how it shakes out. So at the end of Malachi 3, he basically describes two groups of people. The first group turns to him and says, well, what profit is to us? So he says, you have said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? Don't you see that sometimes today? Like people who are, even myself, sometimes as I'm considering how how exactly to keep an ordinance, um, it's easy to wonder what's in it for me. Or, you know, you start to kind of, you have a selfish motivation behind keeping your covenants and it taints things a little bit. And he warns about that. In fact, you can see in 15, he says, those people, they call the proud happy and they set up the wicked. They put them on pillars basically and assume that those who are not keeping the covenants are happier than they are. And then the second group of people he describes in the next two verses, in 16 and 17, he said, but they that feared the Lord spoke often to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was kept. This is that same idea of a book of remembrance that we've seen since Adam, that there are your deeds and your diligence and your obedience to the Lord are written down. All those things are written down and are kept. And I, as a mom, <laughs> this just brings all kinds of comfort to me, because there's all kinds of things that are invisible to the world or to my family or to my kids. There's things that you do as a parent to try to do good that will never be seen or recognized. In fact, oftentimes they're despised because, you know, your kids just don't see very clearly. And so I love this promise that those who are of him, those who have honored his covenants and have tried, you, your acts will be remembered. They are all written down. In fact, I love the way he describes it. He says, those who are of the Lord speak often to one another and they fear the Lord and they thought on his name. Those are not big qualifications. <laughs> it just means you're trying, you're diligently trying to be a disciple of Christ. You're talking to each other. You're trying to build each other up. You're remembering the Lord and you're thinking on him. Uh, that's the promise. And, and if they do that, they have these incredible blessings offered. So it says he will make them up as his jewels. That at the last day, that's how we'll be able to understand who is who, right? That the Lord will know who needs to be made up as his jewels. He'll know because in, they're in that book that their records are kept and their diligence is recorded and he will know who between the righteous and those who are not. So you'll see all of that laid out in chapter three. Chapter four is an extension of chapter three, but it teaches some key doctrines. One, in verse one, I have sagebrush written next to it, and I'll explain why. I mean, this is a warning about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Like we've been talking about in three, this day when the Lord comes, that will be a joy and a delight to those who are righteous and a day of fear and trembling for those who are wicked. And here's why it reminds me of sagebrush. If you look at the end, it talks about how they will burn as stubble and they will have neither root nor branch. Traditionally, we teach that as a family history verse, because that's also the promise that if you don't participate in the covenants, you are not sealed. 
So you're left without posterity and without a link to your ancestors. You're left alone without that welded link. And I think it's a beautiful way to teach that concept. But I also love it as a way to teach conversion and testimony. Because I think what the Lord is asking me to do individually is to make covenants with Him and form a relationship with Him. That As I honor those covenants, I come to know Him and love Him and become like Him. And that process gives me roots and it gives me fruitful branches. I learned this when I was studying in the Book of Mormon. So if you look in 2 Nephi 15, 24, it warns about how there will be roots that have rottenness and unfruitful branches. So when I think of something like that, I think of sagebrush. This is why. I grew up in eastern Idaho, and there's some serious wind that happens there. And what will happen in a big windstorm is you'll see these massive sagebrush bushes that just get yanked out of the soil like that, and they tumble for days and days, and they just roll. And it's fascinating to me because they're so big that you would think they must have a root structure. How can they get ripped out of the soil like that? But when you look at them, you notice that they don't, right? They, they don't have anything to hold them. I really think that's what the Lord is trying to teach me when he asked me to make and keep covenants with him. What he wants to give me are lush, fruit-filled branches that will hold the bush in place. He wants to give me roots that sink deep into the soil and draw water and nutrients up so I can sustain myself. What you have if you don't make those covenants with him is sagebrush. You have a, a big structure that simply cannot withstand this kind of wind. And so when this great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, it burns. Just like sagebrush burns fast and it becomes as stubble. It becomes, there's nothing to hold it steady. So although you can read verse 1 as a family history verse, I think you can also read it as an invitation to fully convert because the promise is you'll have boughs that are full of fruit and roots that sink deep into the soil so that you can withstand this day. So that's a promise to me. I love the promise you see in two as well. You see that he promises that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. Anytime you talk about the Savior and healing, my heart opens up a little bit bigger because I just love the, the visual of him as a healer. My dad's a doctor and I just, I don't know, I've always really admired and respected anyone who can repair wounds and heal things. I think there's beauty in that. But in particular, I love it because of what you learn from Isaiah, this idea of the atonement being a covering. You know, we've seen that throughout throughout the Old Testament, that that Hebrew word atonement is often translated as a covering, something to keep you safe. It's that robe of righteousness that's extended over you. It's a, it's a covering or an arching over. But I also love covering when you think of it like a bandage, that it is something that the Savior offers us this covering, not to hide our sins or hide our wounds, but to heal them. It's a clean bandage that he will check on, that he will have watch care over, and that will heal, that will change you from someone who is wounded and damaged to someone who is whole. And I love that image of the Savior. And isn't it great that in these last few verses of the Bible, we get reminded of that version of Jehovah, that he is this great healer. After you've read all this destruction and the hard and the burning, he reminds that he is one who heals. And I love that Malachi chose to put those in that order. When you go to the end of chapter four, you're going to see two prophets that we've studied extensively in our Old Testament study pop back up to the surface. In fact, these two prophets are mentioned in every book of scripture. <laughs> in all the parts of your quad, you're going to see these verses about the hearts of the fathers turning to their children and the children to the fathers. It's what the Savior taught when he came among the Nephites. It's what Joseph Smith was taught by Moroni. It's a powerful message because it is the whole purpose of this earth. 
fact, when you go on the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that the earth is utterly wasted if it wasn't for these sealing keys being restored. So I love that it hinges on these two prophets because Moses and Elijah, we studied, they are people who come in three different dispensations. They come in their mortal ministry and they teach among their own people. They come again when the Savior comes on the Mount of Transfiguration to restore things. And then they'll come again in the Kirtland Temple as resurrected beings to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery so that they can restore, right? I love that Moses is the restorer of the gathering, right? He brings, opens up the keys of the gathering. So for all who are living and on the earth, what Moses offers is an opportunity to come and to make covenants with the Lord. What Elijah offers is to everybody else. So he offers the sealing keys to all those who are dead. So that families who have already passed on, family members who are gone, that they can be brought back to the covenant, that they can be sealed. And I love those two together. They both pivot around what the Savior offers, which, you know, is all of those keys in one. But I love the pairing of them, the promise of hearts turning. I've seen this personally in my own life as I've come to just get a taste of family history from my my church service mission as working with Family Search and also things I've done on my own that you see, you know that the reality of hearts turning when you just step in to those parts of your covenants, when you lean in to that promise of sealing miracles happen. I, I wish I could give you, I wish I could articulate one for you here that would help you understand, but they're so nuanced and small for me that when they pile all together, that's where my testimony comes from, um, that these things are real, these promises are true, and there's a reason they're in every book of scripture, because everything pivots around them. If you want to learn more from the prophets about what they have to say about these promises, go in the notes. I promise there's incredible things to learn from all of them. But I really do love that at the very end of this gigantic book of scripture, we have this simple, solid promise that all things will be made whole, that everyone will have an opportunity to be united again, and that the family that began with Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the Old Testament will once again be gathered and sealed through this covenant that will come down the road. It's a beautiful promise. Welcome to the creative side of week 51, you guys. I'm going to help you find ways to teach Malachi and tuck it into the things you're already doing. Because you guys, I have six kids. I know how stressful this time of year is. And I know how you just can't take on one more extra thing. So my goal here is to find ways to help you teach these verses in memorable ways without adding any extra stress. And I've got three simple ones for you to choose from. I'll walk you through the basics first, and then I'll take you into each and every one um, so you know how to pull it off. The first one is a Christmas movie night. So chances are you're already going to take some time at some point in the next week or two to watch a Christmas movie with your kids. And my hope is that you can find a way to teach Malachi at the same time. To make it a little more fun, I'm also creating in the printable a little treat box and a movie ticket, and I'll explain why. But this is to help you have a movie night together and teach a little bit about sacrifice. So I'll explain in just a minute. The second one is about how Malachi teaches us about tithing. And his invitation is, prove me now herewith. That's what the Lord says. He says, put me to the test. And what that always reminds me of when I hear those words, prove me now, is yeast. Maybe because I make a lot of bread. But what you do in every recipe that makes bread is they tell you to proof your yeast, which means give it the right temperature, give it the right setting, and it will bubble up and foam. So you can teach it with just yeast, or you can take it to the next level, which is what I would recommend, and make a Christmas star. Ours is half eaten. <laughs> 
So it makes a star shape in the middle and it has kind of a snowflake vibe all around. It's cinnamony goodness that will fill your whole house with an incredible smell. What I love about this particular recipe is you can make it days ahead and then pop it into the oven on Christmas morning and it's delicious and gorgeous all at the same time. So I'll walk you through how to create that one. The last one is simply a Christmas memory capture. It's phone week on the chart. So my hope as you see that little phone icon on, under the sticker is that you'll use your phone to teach the gospel. One of the simple ways to do that is to talk about how hearts turn from the fathers to the children when we honor Christmas traditions. So this is a simple one, you guys. My hope is that you will just capture a Christmas memory, either from your own immediate family, like mine is from my parents' tradition of having Christmas Eve by candlelight. So my intent is simply to capture that memory. I'll record it and I'll post it on the family search account so that that memory is captured. Because I really think that's what ties our hearts together. It's not just that we know each other's names and dates, it's that we have traditions that carry through. So I'm going to walk you through how to go, how to accomplish that when we get into the details of the object lesson. But that's the goal for these three. All right, you guys, that's it for week 51 and the end of the Old Testament. But we have goodness coming. So next week, we'll have a lesson that's focused entirely on Christmas and specifically on what the Old Testament offers us and adds to the Christmas story. And there's so much. So I hope you'll tune in next week and I'll give you even more goodness um, about how you can add some Old Testament insights into your Christmas. But that's it for this week. All right, you guys, enjoy it. If you have questions or if you want to join me on the live, that's Monday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. I'll pop on, cover some of the insights I missed and walk you through the object lessons really quickly. <laughs> you can also always listen to things in podcast form. So on the public podcast, you can find all the insights audio so that you can listen to it. You can also find on the public podcast, the video content. So if you want to share that with friends or family and help the course grow, that would be fantastic. We'd be thrilled. So you can find that if you go on any podcast app and look for Creative Come Follow Me. Um, if you want to access to the private podcast that subscribers are able to access, which includes all the insights audio and all the creative audio and links to the notes. If you don't have that set up on your phone already, message me and I will happily send you your private link so you can get in there. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy your week. We're inching closer to Christmas, and I hope this one is a better one than you've ever had before. If for no other reason, because hopefully you've come a little closer to Christ, like I have, like I just feel like this study of the doctrines of the Old Testament have helped me appreciate not just the mortal Christ that we tend to celebrate on Christmas, but who he was in all those generations before. The God of the Old Testament, the great Jehovah, that adds weight and joy to my Christmas in a whole new way. I hope it does for you as well. So enjoy your week, you guys, and I'll be back next week with a short but sweet Christmas lesson for Creative Come Follow Me, and then we'll head into the New Testament. All right, you guys, enjoy your week. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate 
meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.